Good morning. If you've got your Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. We are going to be in Genesis chapter 14 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you do not know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We have people each week who are unfamiliar with the Bible. Uh, Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. And if you start uh, making your way forward there, you should find uh, Genesis chapter 14 in fairly short order. When an author is writing a story, and I, I should say when an author is writing a good story, they have a wide number of tools to use to make that story better. These tools that can be used by an author to enhance a story are often referred to as literary devices. And an author who is using literary devices well is using them to draw connections, to enrich the story, to add layers of meaning into it. And one of the literary devices that an author might have at her fingertips is the literary device of foreshadowing. You may have learned about foreshadowing in a junior high or high school or a college class, Uh, but foreshadowing is a literary device in which something that's going to occur significantly later in the story is anticipated early on in the story. And many times when foreshadowing is used well, the, the anticipation of that is very subtle so that you don't even realize when you're reading this that, that, that foreshadowing is happening, that, it's, that it is anticipating event, an event or a person that's going to come into the story at a later time. Sometimes it's easier to give an example than a definition, and so I'll give you one I found for, from the book To Kill a Mockingbird, which many of you have probably read at some point in your school careers. But this, in the story of To Kill a Mockingbird, that one of the main characters, his name is Atticus Finch, he is a white southern lawyer in the Depression. And at the beginning of the book, he describes courage to his children this way. He says, it's when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway and see it through no matter what. Now, at this point in the story, Atticus Finch has not yet met the African-American man who has been unjustly accused of a terrible crime and who is eventually going to be unjustly killed for a crime that he did not commit. Atticus Finch is going to have to live out the definition of courage that he shares with his children at the beginning of the story. And so once the story is over, the reader can go back and say, oh, that sentence, that definition has much more meaning now at the end of the story than it did at the beginning before I knew all of these things were going to happen. That's foreshadowing. And this morning, we are going to see an example of foreshadowing in Genesis chapter 14. And it's going to be in the middle of a story where you would never expect it to happen. 
Let me do my best to bring you very briefly up to speed for what's going on in Genesis chapter 14 through the first 12 or 13 verses. The first 12 or 13 verses of Genesis chapter 14 record for us a local skirmish in the Jordan Valley. We have basically uh, four kings who, make, who form a coalition and another five kings who form an opposite coalition and they have a battle between them. This is a normal sort of thing that happened all the time in the ancient world. And uh, D.A. Carson has told us that when we think of these kings, we should think more of town mayors than what we traditionally think of as kings. Because kings, we usually think of these large kingdoms, these huge armies. But what was often taking place in the time of the day is that you would have a king over a, a city uh, a, read, a small region around them, and these cities and regions and kings would constantly be forming these shifting coalitions to, to gain power or to protect themselves. And what happened in, in, in this story at this time would never have been worthy of including in the Bible. It was one incident of perhaps hundreds of incidents that occurred all of the time, that would have no point in being in the Bible except one of those kings that's involved in one of these coalitions is the king of Sodom. And if you've been with us up to this point, then you know somebody important in our story is living in Sodom. Who's living in Sodom? It's Lot. Lot has, Lot has moved his family to be near Sodom and eventually in Sodom. And though he has no part in this conflict, he gets caught in the crossfire. So that when the coalition that is composed of the king of Sodom and several other kings, when they lose, Lot and his family and his possessions get carried off with the victors. So... Word comes to Abraham that this has happened. And if you're Abraham, how might you receive this word? Well, I guess some problems just take care of themselves. After all, he's done all this to bring Lot with him and to care for him Lot is in some ways receiving blessings from God because these blessings have been promised to Abram, but Lot has been nothing but a thorn in his side. Lot's uh, herdsmen have been uh, engaging in conflicts with Abram's herdsmen, and it's been such a big deal that they've actually had to separate, and Abram and his magnanimity has said, you know what, even though the promises were made to me, and this is my land, Lot, you can have your choice, you can go ever, wherever you want, Lot chooses the best for himself, and look what happens. And if you're Abram, and you're probably a better person than me, you're definitely a better person than me, but if you're Abram and I'm Abram, I'm thinking, hmm, well, got what's coming. <laughs> but that's not what Abram does. Abram does not turn a blind eye to his nephew and his family who have been taken captive. And the Bible tells us this in Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 14, the word of God says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 
318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan is a place, not a person, named after a person, of course. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, you would think that everything that I've just described up to this point and told in pretty short order, you would think that this would be the focal point of this story because this has all the ingredients of a good story. You have, you have danger, you have rising conflict, you have people being captured, you have a hero rising to the occasion, going out to rescue those who have been captured, fighting in a battle, and returning victorious. You have a whole narrative arc of a circle of a story, and you would think that that would be the focal point of why this is in Genesis chapter 14. You would think that this is where the action is, but the focal point is actually what happens when Abram returns. After all the action is over, and everybody's been rescued and living happily ever after, that's the focal point of this story. Because when, when Abram returns home in victory, two kings come out to greet him. Look with me now at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, and brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share." This is, the, this, is what we're, this, is, this is the focal point, what I've just read, of this story. Not the battle, but the return. And there are two kings we just read about that greet Abram and his victorious army when they come back. And, the, and we've got the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom is very grateful that Abram has brought back all that the king of Sodom has lost. And as, a, as an expression of that gratitude, he asks for the people back, but tells Abram, you can keep the stuff. Basically, all the things of mine that you have recovered, you can keep. 
But Abram refuses because he's, he's raised his hand. He's sworn an oath to the Lord that he is, going to, he is not going to take any of the blessings, any of the spoil of war for himself because he does not want anyone to think that any, he does not want somebody to think that anyone other than God has given him the blessings that he, ha, that he has. Remember, God has promised Abram all kinds of blessings. Abram doesn't need what the king of Sodom has to offer, and he does not want anyone to think that he has been enriched by this effort, and so he turns it down. And you know what? This story that we've just read together would totally stand on its own without verses 18 to 20, right? 18 to 20 record these three little verses, record about a very brief interaction with a guy, with the other king, Melchizedek. And if you were reading the stories, if it was a novel, and those three verses got pulled out and lost forever, it would not impact the story at all, would it? That this interaction with Melchizedek adds, adds nothing to the story itself. But there he is, a king named Melchizedek, who is included here in this story. And the Bible tells us that when he comes out and greets Abram and his army, he, he feeds him. He brings out bread and wine to care for the men who have gone to battle. And then the Bible tells us just this little, in fact, it's actually put in parentheses in many of the translations that you're working with, this short little parenthetical phrase that this king was also a priest of the Most High God. And for those of us who have a Bible background or those of us who have a lot of biblical knowledge, that can be sort of a ho-hum detail, one that we could easily pass over because we're familiar with priests. Abram is going to become a family who's going to become a nation, and this, the religious life of the nation is going to be mediated and regulated between God and his people through priests. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and humanity. You could put it this way. A priest is one who links heaven and earth. A priest is one who links a holy God and sinful people. And this, ought, this little parenthetical statement ought to grab our attention because this is the very first time in the Bible priests are even mentioned. We're familiar with priests because many of us have read the Old Testament or learned about the people of God in the Old Testament, but this is the very first mention of a priest in the Bible. Our text presents Abram as greater than the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom wants to bless Abraham, wants to give Abraham some of the spoil that's come from this battle. And Abram says, no, thank you. I don't need it. I don't need anything from you. And so the text presents Abram as greater than the king of Sodom, even though Abram is no king himself. But the text then turns around and in some ways presents King Melchizedek as greater than Abram. 
And that ought to come as a surprise to us because if there's, if there's any human being in creation at time that we would think is at the top, is the greatest, it would be the one to whom God said, hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, give you the land, and in you shall all nations of the world be blessed. That sounds like the top. Yet... We've got Melchizedek, in some respects, being presented as greater than Abram because Abram pays Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe. Melchizedek is a priest who receives a tenth or a tithe of everything that Abram has just gotten. Now, it's interesting here that Melchizedek just appears out of the blue. We're reading along, we're reading along, we're familiar with characters. The characters that are just playing bit parts in Genesis don't really have much information. So we've got, I don't know, nine or ten kings in various cities mentioned here, and there's there's not a lot of background given, but everyone who's anyone in, in the book of Genesis has a genealogical record for them, right? I mean, you can't turn the page in Genesis without tripping over another genealogy. You get a full head of steam with the story, okay, we're moving along, and then we stop, and we have a genealogy break, and we know whose father is whose father is whose father is whose father, all the way back to Adam. It happens over and over and over again, and every significant person in the book of Genesis has this genealogical record, except for Melchizedek, who just kind of shows up. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Not only... These three little verses, does Melchizedek just show up totally out of the blue? But in the rest of the story, throughout the rest of Genesis, he doesn't make another appearance. Nobody says anything about Melchizedek. Nobody says, hey, remember when Melchizedek showed up? Nothing. You go out of Genesis, you start reading through the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, no mention of Melchizedek. In fact, There is only one other mention of Melchizedek in the entirety of the Old Testament. And it doesn't happen until several centuries later. Because you see, Abram does in fact become a great family. And that family does in fact become a great nation. And that great nation does in fact produce a king... And King David is sitting in his chambers or in his court or out in his gardens one day when he pulls out a pen, if you will, and writes Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, King David, who occurs centuries later, speaks prophetically about a coming king like, uh, who, like Melchizedek, will also be a priest. Interesting. Because in the nation of Israel, priests can't be kings and kings can't be priests. So David is sitting there as a king in Jerusalem, okay, king of Salem. He's sitting there in Jerusalem 
reflecting on the fact that there is someone coming after him, speaking prophetically, who is going to be like Melchizedek in that he is both a priest and a king. One person who is going to combine those two offices. Now, we're not going to, that's the, that's the only other reference. So, so we got three verses here. We got one verse in Psalm 110, and that's all we get of Melchizedek until we get to the New Testament. And it is not until Jesus has lived out his ministry, never breathing a word, at least for us recorded in the Gospels about Melchizedek, never saying anything about it. Jesus has come, died, buried, resurrected, ascended, and then the author of Hebrews, the anonymous author of Hebrews, is going to reach back into the Old Testament and say, remember Melchizedek? There's a lot of stuff going on here. And I want to, in the time remaining that we have together, I want to draw some connections between Hebrews chapter 7 and that account of Melchizedek with what we just read about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And there's a truth that I want us to see together this morning. That's this. Melchizedek is a prototype priest king who points to the Messiah. And you say, Matt, you're killing me with your main ideas. So it'll be up there for a minute, so you can spell Melchizedek, or you could just put M. Melchizedek is a prototype. When you have a prototype, the prototype is not the final thing. It's a prototype of something to come. Melchizedek is a prototype priest-king who the author of Hebrews is going to share with us, points to the Messiah. Okay, so as I've said, Melchizedek is just kind of quietly tucked in here in these three verses in Genesis chapter 14. But like good foreshadowing does, when we get to the end of the story and we look back, we say, oh, that's the significance of what was going on there. There's something much bigger at stake here. And that's what the author of Hebrews does for us in Hebrews chapter 7. They give us an extended discussion, the whole chapter, about how Melchizedek, that guy that got three verses of airtime in Genesis 14 and one verse of airtime in Psalm 110, he's going to go back and explain to us how Melchizedek pointed forward to the Messiah as a priest and a king. And what the author of Hebrews is going to do, though he acknowledges that he's both a priest and a king, the author of Hebrews is going to focus more on the priesthood of Jesus. And there's a lot that could be said here because Hebrews chapter 7 is making a a long and involved argument, and we don't have time to go through the whole long, involved argument this morning. Uh, Pastor Fred, who prayed just a few moments ago, preached an excellent message on Hebrews 7 and his Hebrews series this summer. If you want to go back and listen to that, I would recommend it to you. But what I'd like to do this morning is just highlight two ways from Hebrews 7 that Melchizedek points forward, he could say foreshadows, he, he points forward to the greater priesthood of the Messiah. Let me say that again because it's important and it's a mouthful. I want to highlight two ways from Hebrews 7 
that Melchizedek points us forward to the greater priesthood of the Messiah, the one he foreshadows. So here's the first way. Melchizedek points to the permanent priesthood of the Messiah. Melchizedek points to the permanent priesthood of the Messiah. How does the author of Hebrews develop that point for us about the permanent priesthood of the Messiah? I'm glad you asked. If you're there in Hebrews chapter 7, look at verse 3. It'll also be on the screen behind me. But Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3 says, He, referring to Melchizedek, is without father uh, or mother or genealogy, uh, or, or drawing the connection between the Messiah and Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing right here is picking up on a detail that we've just drawn out, but he's picking up on a detail of something that was unsaid. He's noticing that there's something unique and different about Melchizedek in Genesis 14 in that there is no genealogy for him. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his father was. We don't know who his mother was. We don't know his birthday. And we have no record of his death. And what the author of Hebrews then is doing is not saying that Melchizedek was eternal. Even though there's no genealogy recorded for Melchizedek, he certainly had one. Though we don't know who his father and mother were, he certainly had them. And though we don't have a birthday or a death date recorded for him, he certainly had both. But like he appears in the text with no beginning or, the, or end, he points forward to one who was coming who truly was eternal, who has no beginning or no end. Jesus Christ. That's the argument that's being made here. And Hebrews continues making this point later in verses 15 and 16. It says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now, a question that we ought to be asking and that maybe many of us are asking this moment is, what is the Bible talking about when it talks about this basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent? What is being referred to here? Well, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, when Israel becomes a nation and their system of worship is, is set up, who is eligible to be a priest? Do Israelites coming out of college go to the local job fair at their community college and stop by the priest booth to ask questions. And I'm thinking about maybe going into the priesthood and I'm wondering, you know, what the starting pay is, what the educational requirements are. It didn't work like that. Why? Because the requirement for being a priest, one of the significant requirements for being a priest, is that you had to be from the line of Levi. In other words, you had to be born into the priestly line. Not anyone could be a priest. 
You had to be a Levite, which is why you'll see the Bible use terms like Levitical. It's referring to being from the tribe of Levi. That's what it means to be a Levitical priest. And so when the Bible says here in Hebrews 7, it's talking about the the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. It's referring to the fact that all Jews would have known is that you had to be a Levite to be a priest. So if the the credential is not, well, I've got a four-year degree and I'm working through grad school, one of the credentials was, I am of the lineage of Levi. But what the author of Hebrews says in verse 16 is that Jesus has different credentials. He is not from the line of Levi. He has an indestructible life. So you're looking at two candidates for the job. Hey, candidate A, I am from the tribe of Levi. Candidate B, I can't be killed. Which credential is better? It's the indestructible life. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. He is not from the tribe of Levi, and thus he is like a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to have one more thing to say about this in, later on in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. Refer back to point A, the power of the indestructible life. One of the built-in deficiencies, one of the problems with Israel's priests that every single one of them had is they had the audacity to keep dying. As soon as you get a priest, you get another one. And you see this revolving door of priests, and there were good priests, and there were bad priests, But one thing that all the priests had in common, besides from being in the tribe of Levi, is that none of them managed to stay alive. They all died. Which is different from the priesthood of Jesus because he continues forever. Jesus, we're talking about the permanent He's greater. His priesthood is greater because it's a permanent priesthood. Jesus permanently links heaven and earth. Jesus permanently links holy God, sinful humans like you and I. Okay, there's a second way Melchizedek points us forward to the greater priesthood of the Messiah. And it's this. Melchizedek not only points to the permanent priesthood of the Messiah, but he points to the perfect priesthood of the Messiah. One of the points that the author of Hebrews makes repeatedly is that Israel's priests were not able to perfectly unite heaven and earth. So the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, as far as it went, was a good thing. It was instituted by God. It was, meant for, it was meant for a way for sinful humanity to be right with God through a system of sacrifices made through the mediator of the priest. 
But they did not do that perfectly. And Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11 says this, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? If, if, if the Levitical priesthood could have brought about the state of relationship between God and humanity that it was supposed to, then there wouldn't have been a need for any other priesthood. But because the Levitical priesthood could not do that, there's a need for a priest after a different order, one like the order of Melchizedek. But the question is, why was the work of the Levitical priests insufficient? Well, the answer is given for us in verse 27. Speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, it says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, there are a lot of things that we could unpack in those verses, but we have to stay focused on our point, and that is simply this. You can't have a perfect priesthood without perfect priests. You can't have the work of the priesthood perfectly done, the perfect joining of heaven and earth, the perfect joining of God and man. That cannot be done through imperfect mediators. And the Bible has just told us that even the best, even the most well-intentioned of the priests who were from the tribe of Levi, before they did any mediating between the people and God, they had to start with the man in the mirror. They had to offer up sacrifices for themselves. And because you have imperfect people acting as mediators between God and humanity You do not ever have a perfect priesthood. But Jesus is different. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he's not from the Levitical line. He has no need for sacrifice for his own sin because he himself is sinless. And Hebrews makes the point this way in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, as has just been described, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's the argument that the book of Hebrews is making. We've got a perfect priest, a perfect priesthood, who perfectly unites a holy God and sinful man in a way that is permanent. Okay, isn't it interesting, once you know the whole story, isn't it interesting that the seeds of this were sown because of a local skirmish in the Jordan Valley between rival kings? Unbelievable. But let's press it further. It's, in, it's, it's great you say, Matt, 
that you were able to work, work the word prototypical into one of your main ideas. <laughs> Love seeing the connections between Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110 and, and, and Hebrews 7, even though we've been able to just scratch the surface. And so now I can see that, now I can see that the storyline of the Bible is woven together once again in a way that is even more amazing than I ever could have imagined. And we've only just scratched the surface. And what can happen is we can say, that's great. And we've just had an intellectual exercise where, okay, I see that Melchizedek points to the Messiah. Awesome. But does that make any difference in your life? Because Monday's coming, and you got to go back to work. And Wednesday's coming, and there's still a lot of week left. And Thursday night's here, and what am I, what relevance does all of this have for my life right now? Well, the author of Hebrews understands that. Because there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 7 which helps us explore a little bit the significance of this for our everyday lives. It's verse 25, and it begins with the word consequently. That means here are the consequences of these truths. These truths are not meant so that you can pass a theology exam. They're not meant for you simply to remain in a high tower. There is something that you are supposed to do with these truths in your heart and in your mind and in your actions on your everyday life. What are the consequences of it? Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, speaking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Who's the them? You. You've got to plug the word me in there. Not just think of yourself as, as the aggregate. He does this kind of thing for us, but, but Jesus always lives. I'm saved to the uttermost, and Jesus always lives to make intercession for me. Now, both these ideas that we've talked about, Melchizedek is pointing forward to the, the permanence of the priesthood of the Messiah and the perfection of the priesthood of the Messiah. And both these ideas of permanence and perfection are found in this verse. Jesus always lives. That's permanence. Indestructible life. Forever. Jesus always always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. What that means is that there is never going to be a gap in your coverage. When my family moved here, from the Detroit area uh, to, to here, going on nine years ago, 
One of the things that we had to do is to keep our insurance, our health insurance coverage going, we had to use something called COBRA to bridge the gap between the insurance we had and the insurance we were getting. And the beauty of COBRA is you can pay 100,000 times more to keep your insurance for six months. And that was a good thing that we did that because the very first night we were here, when we were going to come, I was going to come and preach my first sermon here that Sunday morning. My son got bitten by a spider and got a staph infection promptly upon his arrival in Florida. And we ended up having to go to the ER or urgent care or who, I don't even know because it was a long time ago and I had a lot of other things going on in my mind. Uh, his welfare was one of them, but um, <laughs> that whole time period is a big blur in my mind. But we were glad. <laughs> that we had the exorbitant prices of Cobra to bridge the gap because there's only one thing more expensive than Cobra, and that's going to the doctor. That's really expensive. Now, our Catholic friends have this idea of uh, being in a state of grace. And there's something that can happen to you to fall out of a state of grace. It's, it's committing a mortal sin. And if you die when you have committed a mortal sin and fallen out of a state of grace, there are significant consequences to you. But the book of Hebrews doesn't square with that idea, does it? There is never a time when there is a gap in coverage when you do something that Jesus says, oh... I'm not able to cover that. He ever lives to make intercession for you. Which means that there is nothing you can do as God's child that isn't covered by the intercession of a permanent priest who's there for that very purpose. There's more. This verse also says that Jesus saves to what? To the uttermost. The author of Hebrews could have just left it at Jesus saves those who draw near to the Father through him. That would have been a theologically correct statement. It would have been a statement that we all could have praised God for. But the author of Hebrews wants to throw in a superlative to that. It's not just that you've been saved. It's that you have been saved to the uttermost. And that speaks not to the perfection uh, or to the permanence of his work, but to the perfection of his work. You aren't kind of saved. You aren't mostly saved. You aren't saved with fine print. The Bible says that you are saved to the uttermost. And yet some of us are living day by day and week by week as if that verse said, we've been saved to the almost. Like the work of Christ, our mediator, to link heaven and earth 
is pretty good, but not quite good enough until I add something to it. What are you going to add to the perfect work of the innocent, unstained, sinless, exalted above the heavens high priest who, whose daily responsibility it is forever to intercede for you? And yet we think, ah, haven't been doing good this week. I need to get it a little bit more together. God, I'll be back once I've done a little better. We'll start talking again. That's the prayer and action of a person who's saved to the almost. And here's, here's, the, here's the, the question that you need to, to be asking yourself. <clears throat> or if somebody asks you, what is your relationship with God? How's your relationship with God? And you answer with anything other than perfect. You're revealing that you believe you've been saved to the almost. Now, I'm not saying that when we sin, we don't feel a relational distance between us and our Father. What I am saying is that feeling does not in any way, shape, or form take anything away from the perfect relationship that Christ our priest has created for us. Your relationship with God through Christ will never be one iota better than it is right now. Because Jesus is a really good high priest. And you have been saved, not the almost, but to the uttermost.